Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles once more to Romans 14. I say once more because we've been in the book of Romans a couple of years now. We're studying verse by verse. We come now to chapter 14, verse 13 in our text today. The title of the message is People Before Preference. Now, as we've studied this portion of the book of Romans, we're waist deep in the practical application phase. For the first 11 chapters, we looked at some very deep doctrine around the theme of justification by faith. But beginning in chapter 12, Paul turns his attention to how that doctrine plays itself out in our relationships. That begins with our relationship with God, that we are to view ourselves as his servants, as living sacrifices, Paul says, holy and acceptable unto him. And that affects the way we relate to other Christians. We are now part of a body with Christ as the head and each of us have different functions and we're to appreciate the other person's function. Uh, We also have to relate to lost people. That doesn't change just because we got saved, but our relationship to them surely should be different. Uh, We are to serve them. We are to tell them the gospel, and we're never to take our own vengeance when they persecute us for Christ's sake. We also have a relationship to the government. We're to pay our taxes. We're to submit to them to the degree that they don't cause us to do things that the Lord prohibits. Uh, We have a relationship to ourselves that's been changed. We no longer make provision for the flesh, Paul says. And then last week we saw that that relationship in the church plays itself out between two groups of people within the church. Both of them are Christian, these groups. One Paul calls the strong and the others he calls the weak. And for 26 verses we saw last week, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, Paul tells us how these relationships are to play themselves out in the church. So we need to define our terms clearly. He's talking about a strong Christian is one who rightly discerns the difference between the commandments of God and the opinions of men. And a weak brother or sister are those believers whose consciences are informed and sometimes even bound by past religious experience. They have not come to fully embrace their liberty and their freedom in Christ. At issue here are matters of personal preference, culture, and conviction. These are not clear commandments or prohibitions. These are not the Ten Commandments, in other words. This thou shalt and thou shalt not. These are those gray areas, we might call them. These areas that are morally neutral. And that is where the Bible clearly prohibits an action or or commands another. That would be a commandment. Here, it's not what he's talking about. So, where the Bible commands something clearly, we are to be accountable to one another in love. Where the Bible, though, is silent or isn't specific, we must give grace to one another. And Paul uses two real-world examples from his own time period uh, to show us this. First, in verse 2, is in our diet. Some people are vegetarians. Other people eat all sorts of meat. We're not to look down upon each other based on our diet. And he says in verse 5, on religious festivals. Some people mark their calendars differently than others. Those things to us seem unimportant, but they were very important in Paul's day. But then we looked at the principles of how today we are to relate to one another in the church when we have these disagreements on non-essential matters. Three points we made last week. Number one, and most importantly, really this 
point is the theme of the entire chapter. He says to accept one another. Don't hold one another at arm's length just because we don't walk in lockstep culturally with one another. And we're to have a clear conscience. A clear principle of the Bible is never violate your conscience. And third, leave the judgment to God. All of us, Paul says, are going to stand before the Bema seat judgment of Christ. Why should we judge one another now? Christ is a lot better judge than any of us. That's where we left it last Sunday. So let's pick up now in verse 13 here in chapter 14 and read our text. He says, therefore, that is of the result of what he said so far, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is heard, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. May the Lord add his blessing the reading hearing of this his word. So our first point today is stop judging your brothers and sisters. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Now, when he says anymore, the implication is that had been going on in the church at Rome. Now, Paul had not yet visited personally the church at Rome, but surely word had gotten back to him that they were having these internal and cultural struggles. If nothing else, Paul knows that it's very common in churches in these ancient cities to have these kind of problems. We saw that in Corinth. We saw it in the churches in Galatia. So Paul's not surprised to hear that they're having these problems, but he just writes and says, knock it off. Stop having these problems. Don't judge one another anymore. So what does Paul mean by judging? What do we mean when we say, stop judging me? Well, it usually means something like this, looking down on someone because they're different. And so when Paul says, don't judge one another over these matters of preference and conscience, here's what he means, I think. Don't look down upon a brother or sister spiritually that doesn't share every personal conviction or scruple that you have. And then on the other hand, uh, don't look down on a brother or sister that has convictions that you do not. And so truthfully, he's addressing this prohibition to both the strong and the weak, which includes everyone in the church and everyone in between. A strong Christian, he's saying, don't look down on a brother or sister whose conscience is sensitive and matters where yours are not. And to the weak Christian, he says, don't look down on a brother or sister who is enjoying their freedom in ways that your conscience will not allow you to. But Paul here goes much further than telling us that we need to ignore the things about the other believer that we don't like. Did your mother ever tell you when your sibling was infringing on your rights. Well, just ignore them. That's not what Paul is counseling us to do. He's not saying just ignore the brother or sister who is annoying you. It goes much farther than that. He's calling us to action. He's calling us to promote their sanctification. In short, he wants us to be a helper and not a hinderer when it comes to our brothers and sisters' sanctification. Now, you do know that you are involved in your own sanctification, right? And we talk about our salvation from three perspectives, the past, the present, and the future. In the past, we were saved through God's justification. He declared us forgiven and clean through the blood of Jesus. He did all of that. 
And then one day he's going to take us to heaven where we'll be free from the presence of sin and that's called glorification. But in the meantime, as long as we're living in these bodies of flesh, we're in the process of sanctification and we participate in our sanctification. How do we do that? Here's what I mean. God doesn't pour the Bible in through the pores in the top of our head through osmosis. We have to come to church. We have to open our Bible at home. We have to meditate and read and pray and surround ourselves with other Christians and all of those disciplines that promote sanctification. Most of us know we participate in our sanctification, but some of us have forgotten that we also participate in the sanctification of every other member of the church. Now we know in the book of Ephesians that husbands are told to participate in the sanctification of their wife, just as Christ gave himself up for the church and presented the church clean. We're to do that with our wives. And I take it, wives, you participate in your husband's sanctification, but it's not just in marriage. When you join a church, what you are agreeing to do in part is help promote the growth spiritually of every other member of the church. And he's saying, when you are offended easily by a preference or a culture in another person that you don't share, you are not helping their sanctification fact, you're hindering it. Here's what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way, but rather, that is in place of, in place of judgment, let's determine this, that we're going to be a help and not a hindrance in our brother's sanctification. Now this word stumbling block is used many times in the New Testament and sometimes by Jesus. Jesus had some very tough words for those who would hinder another person from being as close to him as they could be. One example of that is in Luke 17, 1. Do you remember where the people were bringing their little children to be blessed by Jesus? What did Jesus say about that? He says, suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not. Apparently his inner circle was sort of blocking the way and they thought that these children would somehow be a bother to Jesus. He rebuked them publicly for that. Um, in Luke 17, 1, we read, He said to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now we typically apply that also to little children, someone who would abuse a child. It would be better that a millstone hung around his neck than he cast into the sea. But in the context, Jesus is talking about all Christians. He calls all of us His little ones. And if someone would hinder one that he's died for for making progress in sanctification, there, there's some harsh words. And of course, the group that Jesus had the greatest rebuke for during his day were the Pharisees, these self-described keepers of the law, these people who were supposed to be leading the people. Jesus says, you're not leading them. In fact, just the opposite, you're hindering them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. It's worse than them being neutral. It's worse because they are slowing people down rather than making it easier to get to God. Now, I have often observed in life that the pendulum swings to the extremes. And in Israel during the time of Christ, the pendulum of religion had swung to the extreme of legalism. These Pharisees who were the religious leaders had led the people into burdensome legalism, particularly as it relates to things that God had given the people for a blessing, namely the Sabbath rest. 
That's why Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God gave a good gift to humanity, the Sabbath, so that he may rest and be reinvigorated. And yet the Pharisees had added laws and rules and minutiae to the simple Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy until it became a burden. People began to dread the Sabbath coming around every week rather than looking forward to it. And Jesus didn't like that. And so he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's what the Sabbath was for, to give rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find, here it is again, rest for your souls. Now that was in Jesus' day. The pendulum had swung to legalism. Now fast forward 2,000 years to our own day, and I would observe that with a few notable exceptions, the pendulum of religious experience, in America at least, has swung in the opposite direction, towards antinomianism, which means against the law. There's no restrictions rather than too many. In fact, in our own culture, the only person who's vilified is the one that tries to be discerning. Anyone who says anything is wrong is vilified in, in the culture. And, and it's led to some phrases that I hear all the time in the present generation, if someone points out some person's lifestyle or behavior is antithetical to the word of God, someone may be offended and say, well, you do you. Have you heard that phrase? Very popular among young people. You do you, which means stay out of my life. Don't worry about me. You do you. And this one, well, that's their truth. They're living their truth. But the Bible says there's truth and there's error, right? And so they can't have your truth and my truth if, if they're polar opposites of one another. But that's what I mean that the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. I had a pastor who called me a couple years ago and says, look, the problem, biggest problem in our churches today is legalism. And I laughed out loud. I said, are you kidding? And that might have been true 30 or 40 years ago. But the problem today is not legalism, with, with a few rare exceptions. The problem is license, that anything goes. So he's not calling us, hear me, he's not calling us to be undiscerning. He's calling us to be emphasizers of the proper things. Did you know that when I was a kid, the most popular verse in the Western world was John 3.16? You turn on a football game, someone's bound to have a sheet with the word John 3.16 written on it. It was everywhere. Even lost people could recite it. For God so loved the world, they gave his only begotten son that... Whosoever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what the most popular verse today, if anyone even knows a Bible verse? Matthew 7, 1, judge not that ye be not judged. Many in our culture take that to be a license to live any way we want to live. They, they fail to remember that just a few verses later, he editorializes a little bit about that verse by saying, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. He's not saying be undiscerning. He's saying start your discernment in the mirror. And then once the beam's out of your own eye, then you can help others. So remember, brothers and sisters, Paul is not calling on us to be undiscerning or antinomianism in these verses. Rather, he's calling on us to emphasize the right things, which is our third point. What are the right things? Well, look at verse 14. He says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. So the question is, people who are eating one thing and not another, people who are worshiping on one day and not another, Paul sums it up and says, look, I know 
and he's using apostolic authority here. This isn't Paul's opinion. He says, I know and I'm convinced, I take it it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That is, we don't have dietary restrictions in the new covenant. Paul knows that. And then you'd think he'd put a period or an exclamation point there. End of story. It's not what he does. He adds a conjunction there. He says, but. So I know and I'm convinced in the Lord nothing's unclean, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him who Christ died. Now here's Paul, formerly, earlier in his life, the most fastidious of practitioners of Judaism anyone's ever known. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrew, Pharisee of the Pharisees, is touching the law blameless. There was a day when he wouldn't dare eat something that he would consider unclean. But now he's been set free by the blood of Jesus. He's walking and experiencing that freedom. He doesn't want to go back. And yet he is willing to forego his rights in some of these areas if it would help another person. Because remember, he's laid out the principle, don't violate your conscience. And if you encourage a weaker brother to violate their conscience, to do something that he believes is sin, you're encouraging him to sin. And should a Christian ever encourage another believer to sin? Absolutely not. Paul's saying, I know, I'm, my conscience is clear. Now, this very scenario played itself out in another church, the church at Corinth. So let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. You remember the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. In fact, they were a wreck just a mess. They had sexual immorality going unchecked in the church. There were divisions in the leadership. Some were following Paul and some Peter and some Apollos. But one of their biggest problems were divisions over these cultural issues. And in Corinth, just like in Rome, there were many pagan, religious, idolatrous temples. And in those temples, they had worship practices that were profane. I can't even say them in mixed company, what they would do in the name of worship. But in the midst of all that, they would sacrifice animals to gods and goddesses. And sometimes some of the meat from those sacrifices would end up in the local market, the agora. A Christian would come out Monday morning, a Christian lady, to buy the groceries for the week. And she'd see some meat hanging there. It was a good price. And she would take it home to her husband. And he would say, did you get this at the market? And she'd say, well, I sure did. It was on sale. And he'd say, well, what if it was sacrificed to one of these idols? And then they were in a conundrum. Here God has provided us meat at a good price, but should we eat it or should we not? And you ask people at church and they're divided. Some say yes and some say no. So here's Paul and he's going to answer this issue. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4 he says, Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, that is we strong Christians, know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. Amen? We are monotheist. We believe there's one God. And these things that they're sacrificing to, Zeus and Apollo and Athena, these aren't anything real. So why shouldn't we enjoy the meat that God has provided? So our conscience can be clear there. There's no other God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one, the Father, from whom all things and we exist in Him, one Lord Jesus Christ, whom are all things and we exist through Him. That is, God created everything, including this meat that's been sacrificed to a false idol. 
however, which is the same thing as but that we saw back in Romans. You'd think he was going to put a period or an exclamation point, but instead he says, however, not all men have this knowledge. That's not to say that all men don't have basic understanding of doctrine. He's saying their consciences have not allowed them to eat this meat yet. Many of them came out of terrible practices, and when they think of that meat, they think of how they used to live, and they're not yet able in clean conscience to participate. We're not to force them or push them or even look down upon them. Verse 8 says, but food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse for it if we eat or the better if we do. Now, that's a very important sentence there. Don't think that you prove your strength because you have a scruple someone else doesn't. Or vice versa. Here's the point, verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Make sure that in exercising your liberty, you're not slowing down someone's sanctification. And then Paul gets very, very personal in verse 13. Look at it. He says, therefore, because I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone else... If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, if you go back and look through the Pauline literature, you'll find many places where Paul talks about meat. And I conclude from that that Paul was somewhat of a connoisseur of ribeye steaks. (laughs) I think he liked a good steak, like many of us do. But he says, look, as much as I love a good steak, I'm willing to be a vegetarian if it will keep a weaker brother from stumbling. I think he meant it. This was not some false humility. And you know what he's saying there? He's saying what the title of my sermon is, that in the church, people are more important than your preferences. Now you say, Pastor, we don't go to the meat market today with meats. No, we don't. We don't have to worry about that. But there's a hundred different other things that can cause problems in the church that are matters of culture and preference. And so just whatever's going through your mind now that applies, just stick it in there and say, if doing that is going to cause my brother to slow down in his sanctification, I'm willing to forego it. I'm willing not to do that thing that I enjoy doing with clear conscience so much if it's going to hinder my brother or sister's sanctification. That's what the Bible means when he says, owe nothing to any man except to what? Love. That's what love does. Love doesn't demand its own rights. Love foregoes its own rights and privileges for the good of the other person. And who is the greatest example of love in all the Bible? It's the Lord Jesus, right? Who had more rights and privileges than Jesus? Paul says in Philippians, he was equal with God. He was in heaven being worshipped and attended to by the holy angels, but he did not hold on to that place tightly, but he emptied himself, poured himself out, took on the form of a servant so that he could die in our place on the cross. And if Jesus did that, we can too. In fact, Jesus said, no greater love is any man than this than he lays down his life for his friends. And he did that literally at the cross. And so come close and I'll give you the main point to that. If Jesus can die for us, we can give up what we like to do temporarily for the good of another believer. That's not much of a sacrifice for us to make. So, people over preference. One of the ways that we can show that we are a strong Christian and not a weak Christian is that we can forego our freedoms at time for the good of others. 
Now think about your own children. Let's say you have five children in your family ranging in age from 19 down to three. Hopefully, they range in maturity from 19 down to three in that chronological order. But let's say there's a decision to be made for the good of the family which will require one of those five to make a sacrifice for the benefit of the other four. Which of those five do you think you ought to go to first and ask them to give ground? The least mature or the mature? The most mature. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul's coming to the strong. He says, look, this applies to the weak as well, but I'm coming to you who call yourself strong and say, I'm asking you to be willing to give up your personal preference so that this weaker brother can make progress in sanctification. How do we do that? We'll go back to Romans 14. And let me summarize what he says in the last verse. Keep the main thing the main thing. That is, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Look what it says, verse 17, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. It says, look, those things we enjoy doing in the body aren't the main thing. In fact, Christ's kingdom in the here and now at least is spiritual. Jesus is ruling and reigning, but it's not at the United Nations. He's ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of believers. It's a spiritual kingdom so far. And so he says, look, since it's a spiritual kingdom, that means that it manifests itself fundamentally not in physical things like eating and drinking, but rather in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. It sounds a whole lot like the Beatitudes we've been studying on Wednesday night. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, the only way to be acceptable to God is to have that purity of heart. And he's speaking here of imputed righteousness, which is the third thing he says. Righteousness, peace. Joy in the spirit. That is someone who's truly living out the attributes of a kingdom citizen is not going to be tripped up for long by a cultural or preferential secondary or tertiary issue. That is, you're going to stress in your life and in the church those things which are essential. Number one, righteousness. To be right with God. In other words, you have to have his imputed righteousness righteousness by accepting his gift of grace by faith alone. And then that result in practical righteousness in your relationships. You have to have peace with God. You have to recognize that you're poor in spirit, that you can't come to him from a posture of negotiating, that, that you're in rebellion against him and you come to him in humility and you receive his free gift. And then that peace with God translate into peace of mind, which passes human comprehension and often translate into peace with other people. And then that leads to joy in the Holy Spirit. Not the temporary joy of getting your own way. It's the joy that comes from being right with God and right with another person because you've submitted your preferences to the Lord. Amen? And if all 2,000 of us in this church will do that, <laughs> this will be a little bit of heaven on earth. Let's pray for that, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. and. Father, we know we are imperfect practitioners of it. We know more to do than we do. We still struggle with this body of death, Lord. We want our own way. We're selfish. We look down upon people who don't have the same scruples we do and think less of them. We hold them at arm's length. We don't fully embrace them 
as brothers and sisters. And Lord, that's sin. Forgive us of that. As our church grows and it, it, begins, it begins to look different, we have people from every generation and every race on planet Earth and every cultural distinctive and every socioeconomic level. Lord, the, the temptation is going to be greater and greater to divide rather than unify. And Lord, I pray you'd help us. Don't let Satan divide us. Not from overt sin, certainly. Guard us from that. But Father, don't even let these matters of culture and preference divide us. Help us to always put the other person first. Help us to be willing to forego our own liberties and rights as Jesus did when he left heaven for the benefit of others. Help us all to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.